John chapter 16, verse 1. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Let's pray. Father, we open up your word and we know that we can't understand these things in this text apart from your Holy Spirit. So we pray for your presence to fill this room. Even right now, as we settle our hearts before you, Lord, we pray that you remove the distractions, remove anything that would keep us from the knowledge of you. So we welcome you here in this place right now. We pray that you use us and fill us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we sang that song quite often in England. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. It's a song that we sing pretty often. And I want you to participate with me for a second tonight. Before we continue any further in this study, why don't we just sing that song? Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. I'll lead us off. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for. To be overcome by your presence, Lord. One more time. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for. To be overcome by your presence, Lord. If God told you tonight that he was going to give you an unlimited supply of his Holy Spirit, what would change in your life? If you listen to that prayer just now, because we believe that's a prayer, it's not just a song that we're singing, for God to fill this place, and God said, all right, I'm going to give you an unlimited supply of my Holy Spirit in my presence tonight. If he did that, what would change in your life? Would you get more boldness? Would you leave more encouraged? 
Would you leave this place and no longer think about your insecurities or deficiencies, but you, you would recognize, as we've talked about in our study, when we talked about Jesus and, and the water turned into wine, that your deficiencies are opportunities to see God's deficiency. Anytime you have a lack, it's because God has a supply. And when you recognize that your lacks are just to draw you to God's supply, it won't ever leave you feeling worthless because we know that we're dust. We know that we're worthless apart from God. Apart from him, we can do nothing. We're just branches and we're lifeless without the vine. And so if God says, listen, I will answer you and I will give you everything that you need, what is it that you need and what would change in your life if he answered your prayer? Here's the second question. If God told you tonight that he was going to take away his Holy Spirit from you, it, that's not possible. But let's just say God says, you know what? You're so stubborn. I'm tired of you. I'm done with you. Let me take my Holy Spirit away from you. If he said that, would anyone notice? Would anyone be able to tell the difference in your life? A.W. Tozer had this one quote. If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. So let me ask you those two questions once again. First of all, if God said, yes, let me give you an unlimited supply of my Holy Spirit, what would change in your life? And secondly, if God says, I'm going to remove my Holy Spirit, would anyone know the difference? As a church, we cannot go on without understanding who the Holy Spirit is and what his role is in our life. Because if we continue on as a church without the filling of the Spirit, what we do is we just become a business. We become an organization instead of an organism. We're no longer living, but we're dead. We become like Pharisees. Outside, we look beautiful like whitewashed tombs, but inside, we're full of dead men's bones. And then what, what begins to happen is we become critical of others. When you come to church, it's no longer about being filled and being changed and going out and changing others. Now it comes, it comes to the point where you come in and you no, no longer look for the Holy Spirit to change you, but you look at everyone else and like, ah, oh, no one else looks like me. No one else acts like me. And then you become a hypocrite. You become a Pharisee. And then you start to judge other people based on what you see, not on in the life of Christ, but what you see in yourself. We no longer look to the Spirit for judgment, for conviction of sin. We begin to look at ourselves as the standard. And we say that all churches will look like us. We'll judge all the other churches. If they sound different, if they look different, we're going to judge other people because they don't look like our church. And maybe some other churches do some things a little differently that we wouldn't practice here and we have different convictions, but that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit doesn't have different parts of the body that may look radically different than the others. Some churches might be more shepherding, meaning we're going to disciple some, we're going to raise some up for the work of the ministry so they can be sent out. And other churches might be more evangelistic and say, we want as many people to be saved so the church and our function as a church will be to draw people into the church so that they can hear the gospel. 
two radically different philosophies, two necessary philosophies for the kingdom of God to be advanced. Both need the Holy Spirit. Because if we as a youth group do the blessing blitz without the power of the Holy Spirit, then it just becomes the outward work. Then it just becomes about doing philanthropy, helping other people, saying, oh, let me feed your stomach, but then we lead them to the place that is the opposite of the presence of God. We lead them into, further into their sin because we don't address the more important spiritual need in their life. But first we have to look inward and have to ask ourselves, what is wrong with me and how can the Spirit allow me to live a life that is led by Him and Him alone? So referring to this passage, Jesus is telling His disciples that He is about to go to the cross which, remember, is against the Jewish expectation of the day. They expected him to take over Rome, to overthrow the government, and they said, Jesus says, now I go away. Now I'm leaving. And I can imagine that the disciples had this fear because of what they've read in the Old Testament. So up until Jesus died and rose again, the Holy Spirit could be taken away from you. We saw that in Samson. He did not know that the Holy Spirit departed from him. I can't imagine anything else more scary for the Christian. As I was little, I remember feeling like I could lose my salvation. There's nothing scarier than feeling like you, you no longer have favor with God. But now because we have the Holy Spirit, we, we recognize that we're the dwelling place of God. His, we are his temple. We are his house. So he's living inside of us. And if he chose to dwell in us, he's not going to leave us nor forsake us. But in the Old Testament, it was a different, different thing. Saul, the Holy Spirit left Saul. And David prayed in Psalm 51, please do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. Because the Holy Spirit could not dwell with filthy sinners, could not dwell with people that were in rebellion against him. So I can imagine the disciples are a little upset at this point because Jesus, who had been with them their entire lives, was saying, now I'm going away. And listen, things are going to get really hard. You're about to enter persecutions. You're about to enter tribulations. You're about to enter so many different difficulties. And now I'm going away. And as he says in verse 5, and none of you asked me, where are you going? And then you might think about in chapter 7, Peter asked, where are you going, Lord? So then you're like, wait a minute. If he says, if Peter asked him, where are you going? Then why does it have a blatant contradiction here where Jesus says, none of you asked me where I'm going? Well, when he says that, what he means is just as when you're a little kid and your parents say to you, hey, I'm going out right now. And you don't want your parents to leave. You say, where are you going? It's not because you actually care about where they're going. It doesn't matter. They could be going to super supermarket. They could be going to, you know, Africa. It doesn't matter. You kind of want to know the question of, of why. Why do you have to leave me? And that's kind of the heart behind Peter and the disciples. Not so much where are you going, it's why are you going? Why do you have to leave me now? But then Jesus says, listen, it is to your advantage that I go away. And to me, just looking at it, glancing at it, it's kind of reminiscent of like some breakup conversations. No, listen, it's better that I go away. It's better for both of us if we just end this right now. I, I know you guys haven't had those conversations because you're not a loser like me. But if you were, you would understand this passage and you would read it through that lens. So I can imagine the disciples who put all their faith, all their trust in Jesus are a little scared now because Jesus says, I have to leave you when they gave up everything to follow him. But he says it's to your advantage because if I do not go away, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. You see, Jesus was speaking truthfully to his disciples. If Jesus didn't go to the cross, everything would be in vain. 
everything would be meaningless. Even Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that everything hangs on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This religion is different from every other belief system because you can still have a Buddhism without Buddha. You can have Islam without Muhammad, but you cannot have Christianity without Christ because our religion is not founded of the foundation of our religion is not on precepts, it's on a person. And so if Jesus really isn't God, then nothing matters in our faith. Our faith is in vain. And that's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then, we, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. You know, people talk a lot about Pascal's wager when we're going out evangelizing. Basically, listen, you talk to a person and say, if you don't believe in God and you die, you've lost everything. If I don't believe in God and I die and God turns out not to be real, then I don't lose anything because I still lived a good life. But you know what? Paul says, listen, if Christ isn't real, if God isn't real, then our faith is in vain. And if in this life we only have hope in Christ, then we are of all men the most pitiable. Why did he say that? Because Paul lived a life not of pleasure, but of suffering. Now he found joy in the future. He says, all these things are not worthy to be compared with the glory we'll receive in heaven. He stored up all of his treasures in heaven. So if heaven isn't for real, then he's lost everything. So are we living a Christian life where we're comfortable and we're seeking our pleasure now? Are we living a Christian life where we're saying, it doesn't matter what I go through right now because I know there's a reward waiting for me that's incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away. A place in the heavenlies, a mansion where God says, I am going away. Jesus says, I go away to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. I'm not saying you're supposed to live a miserable life. Don't get me wrong in that. Because he later on talks about ask and your joy will be full and no one will be able to take your joy away from you. But is your joy centered in Christ or in something else? That's the real question. Because if your joy is in anything else that's not Christ, then your joy is temporary and fickle and contingent, meaning it could be or could not be, depending on your circumstances. Are you happy today? Well, is it a good day or is it a bad day? Are you happy? Well, am I hungry or am I not hungry? Am I content or am I not content? It's all just based on your mood rather than the person of Jesus Christ. This is a very different Christianity than what you hear in many churches today, such as the church that Rob Bell pastors, who says there is no hell. And he says our Christianity shouldn't be based in just the resurrection or just the virgin birth or just these essential doctrines, quote unquote, because if you take Christ out of it, then, like Paul says, our faith is in vain. So he says... 
that our Christianity should not be a set of bricks where you take one brick out and everything falls down. It should be like springs in a trampoline. You take out one spring and it still bounces. See, who cares? We don't have the virgin birth. We don't have the resurrection, but Christianity still works. But Rob Bell, like so many, are deceiving and are deceived because they have a fundamental misunderstanding that Jesus wants you to believe based on the evidence in his resurrection. He wants you to place your faith not in a set of precepts, but inside the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus was going away so that he could destroy death, that he could destroy sin, send his Holy Spirit on a mission to reclaim the world. This is his mission, and this is his purpose, and this is why he's leaving. So what's sad about that? What do we have to cry about? Well, I guess nothing, right? There's nothing sad about Jesus destroying death. So then why were they sad? Why were his disciples sad? They should have been happy. Listen, I'm going away. You're sorrowful. Why are you so, why are you so sad? Well, you see, they were sad, and this is important. This is something that we all have to understand tonight, myself included. Ready? They were sad because they could not look forward to what Christ was doing in the future. Have you ever had irrational fears as a child? You were scared of the dark. I slept with the lights on up until I was like 21. I've had irrational fears of clowns, irrational um, fears of just driving my car and crashing. I don't know. I've just been scared of everything when I was little, especially when I was little. But it's funny, though, because you look back at your fears sometimes as a child, and your, your concerns now compared to what you con were concerned about when you're little, uh, your childish concerns seem so small. Your fears as a child seem so little. Because now that you've matured, you've grown up, you're like, it's not that big, that's not, it's not that big of a deal. And you see, for those that trust in Jesus, that is how our current trials will seem when put against the backdrop of eternity. The disciples were sad because they couldn't look forward. Sometimes we're anxious. Sometimes we're sad. Sometimes we're fearful because we too do not look forward to what Christ is doing in the future. You ever just feel stuck? If you've ever struggled with depression, you've ever struggled with anxiety, sometimes, or even a sin that you're in bondage to, it feels like you will struggle with that thing not just for 10 minutes, but forever. You will be in sin forever. You will be under the bondage of sin, or you'll be in that trap. You'll be in depression for the rest of eternity. But that's just not so when it comes to Jesus, because Jesus is, has, has been sent on a mission and is on a mission to redeem humanity. And if we would only look forward to what he's doing, put our faith in him, then we would be able to alleviate that suffering and that sorrow just a little bit. So their sorrow, in other words, was based on a misunderstanding of what God was accomplishing. And so it is with us. Have you ever asked the question, God, why are you letting this happen? Why are you doing this? Well, whenever we ask those questions, which are good questions, by the way. I'm not saying you shouldn't ask those questions. Whenever you ask those questions, it's because we want to know in that moment, 
the reasons why God could justify such an action or justify such a set of circumstances in our lives. But what we have to do is bring those concerns to Jesus. I'm not saying don't have concerns. I'm saying do exactly what the disciples did. Bring your concerns to Jesus. Because maybe, just maybe, if you're looking at the circumstances all the time, you're going to miss out on the big picture of what God is doing in this world. In Judges chapter 20, one of the most confusing passages in the entire Bible, the people of Israel have to battle against one of the tribes, the tribe of Benjamin. And as they're doing that, they ask the Lord, Lord, should we go and fight? And he says, yes, go, I will be with you. And they lose. They're like, what is this? God said he'd be with us, and we fought, and we lost. They go a second time and lost 18,000 people. The second time, they're like, Lord, we, we're really sad, we're really depressed, and uh, we're looking to you, we're trusting in you, should we go again? Second time, yes, go ahead, and they lost 18,000 people. All right, while well, we trusted in you, what's going on? So they fasted, they prayed, Lord, why is this happening? Do you still want us to fight against these people? Yes, a third time, and they went out, and they won. How many of us judge a situation ahead of its time? Lord, I've been fighting. I've been in this school and there's no one that's saved and no one's listening to me. I've been in my class. I've been trying to shine light in this class. I've been trying to correct people. I've been trying to show them the love of God. I've been trying to love my enemies and it isn't working. Go and love those people. I can imagine Hosea talking to God when God told him to love a prostitute. God, why, why, you're telling me to love this prostitute? She, she turned against me and she keeps on cheating on me. I'm done. But he says, go and love her again. Just as I have loved the people of Israel, no matter how many times they turn their backs on me, you do that again. You see, because some of us judge a situation before it's time. When God wants us to trust on him day by day. You see, the people of Israel in Judges chapter 20, they had to be humbled it wasn't until the second time that they lost the battle that they fasted and they prayed. They humbled themselves before the Lord. Sometimes God lets these circumstances in us just, quite frankly, to humble us, to show us that we need to be dependent on Him. Because imagine if He just answered you right away and, like, what would happen to your ego? Yes, I can do anything. I just doesn't matter. Just, I'm, I'm fine. I'm good without God. And you trust in yourself. But God wants us to be continually dependent on, on us on him and so he allows us to go through some hard times he allows us to go through that separation process so we are drawn to him even more so perhaps you aren't looking forward enough then in verse 8 after he talks about to your advantage i go away in verse 8 he says when i when he has come he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in me of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. This sounds reminiscent to Revelation chapter 1 verse 7. Which says beautifully, Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I put a little caption next to that in Revelation chapter 1. And I entitled it, The Great Crying Day. Because there will, everyone in the entire world will be crying when they see the second coming of Jesus Christ. But what's even sadder than that is that some people will be crying 
because of joy, because their anguish is over, because their tears will be wiped away and they'll never have to be sad ever again. And some people will be crying because they'll realize they made the wrong choice. And so it is when the Holy Spirit comes into the world, when the light of the world enters the world, it both exposes the darkness and reveals the light. That's just the natural effect of light. If you shine light in a dark place, it's going to expose the darkness and it's going to reveal things. It's going to reveal those who are in the light. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And so it shows us a revelation of Jesus. And so it says that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. What is that sin? The sin of unbelief, of righteousness. What is it talking about righteousness? It's talking about the world's false righteousness. It's pride saying, just like in that passage in the Bible where it says, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before the Lord. Our false uh, idea of righteousness where we bring it before God and say, here I am, I'm righteous. And God says, no, you're not because I am true righteousness. And of judgment because of the false judgment in the world, because we'll realize just as the prince of the world, Satan will be judged. All false ideas will be corrected when you see the light. And that is the effect the Holy Spirit has on the world. So this little passage here is talking about the Holy Spirit's effect on the world. And, and just, just to summarize that, it is that the Holy Spirit convicts. The Holy Spirit, when it enters the world, convicts of sin. But with the Holy Spirit, we now can believe, we can be made righteous, and we can know the truth. But let me, let me bring up this question. Why is it that people don't believe? We talk about the Holy Spirit coming to convict of unbelief, but why is it that people don't believe? Well, when we were in England, there were plenty of people that didn't believe. Plenty of people we talked to. There's very few people we talked to that did believe. But why is it that people don't believe? Well, there's three types of barriers. There's number one, an intellectual barrier. Number two, an emotional barrier. And number three, a volitional barrier barrier. So you have intellectual, emotional, and volitional barriers. First of all, intellectual. So a person who has an intellectual barrier that you're talking to that doesn't believe in God will ask questions like, um, or they'll say things rather, not a question, but they'll say things like, evolution proves that we don't need God. And so that's why I don't believe. It's because, you know, I believe in evolution. And it takes a person to go up to them and show them their false belief. And if that's the only barrier keeping them from Christ, when you remove that barrier, they'll just be free to accept it. But most people aren't like that. Most people don't just have an intellectual barrier, although some people do. C.S. Lewis had one such barrier. He never understood why Christians are all about, you know, sin and evil and morality and whatever. And he says that famous quote where he talks about, how do you know a line's crooked? You don't know a line's crooked until you see a straight line. Secondly, you have emotional barriers. These people ask questions like, why are there so many hypocrites in the church? Or questions such as, why doesn't God answer my prayers? You see, those are emotional barriers. And even if you solve their intellectual problem, that doesn't always solve the barrier that they have. So they might put up a smoke screen and talk about evolution or talk about whatever. And then you have to get to the heart of the, the problem and say, listen, we could talk theologically and we can talk and speculation all day, but let me ask you this. What is keeping you from Jesus? What is keeping you from committing yourself to him? And, and sometimes we'll be very honest and say, well, just honestly, like my mom has cancer and I've prayed to God and he didn't answer me. 
You see, that's an emotional problem, and that opens up a dialogue between you and that person. But lastly, you have a volitional barrier, which is a person who would say something like, I know what you're saying is true, but I just don't want to believe. Or, I have things in my life I just don't want to give up. And those types of people you cannot convince, you can only pray for. Just as Peter, not Peter, Paul prayed for the Jewish people in Romans chapter 10, that the Jewish people would be saved, we can pray for unbelieving people. You can pray for your backslidden friends and your family members that don't know Christ. You love them and you pray for them. Look at verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said amongst themselves, What is that that he says to us? A little while you will not see me. Again a little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. They said, Therefore, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is saying. So a whole bunch of things that can be illustrated right here in this passage. And that is, Jesus says for the believer, we, we talked about the world, the world is, the Holy Spirit comes in to convict, but for the believer, the Holy Spirit comes to direct, comes to give wisdom, to show, to guide into all truth. And so whenever you're in a difficulty, whenever you're in a tough spot or situation, you can always come before the Holy Spirit because Jesus is the light of the world. He is the image of the invisible God all wisdom will lead us back to Jesus, who is the revelation of the things unknown, who is God. So the effect that truth has on the world is that it exposes lies, and the effect that truth has on the believer is that it guides lives. Either way, the Holy Spirit will always testify of Jesus. Always. Holy Spirit will always guide you into the truth because Jesus is the truth. And if you don't know the will of God, you can always ask. But let me ask you that. When's the last time you asked God for wisdom? When's the last time that you came before the Lord and said, God, God would you show me what you want me to do? And maybe you've prayed that prayer a billion times. You're like, I pray that every single day. And I still don't know what he wants me to do. Well, maybe that's because we're substituting his voice for whatever it is that we want to hear. And we're not seriously taking time to go before the Lord. Because maybe we'll say prayers and we'll, we'll go up to God and we'll say, Lord, give me direction, give me wisdom. But when's the last time you actually sat before him in silence? When's the last time you prayed but then waited for an answer? Versus you just being like, Lord, give me wisdom. Well, you didn't give it to me. All right, well, I'm frustrated. I'm mad. I'm angry. No, Jesus says, I will send the Holy Spirit and he will guide you into all truth. But you might be one of the disciples right now who says, we still don't know what he is saying. A little while and a little while, I don't, know what you're I don't know what you're saying, Jesus. Maybe you're reading the Bible and you're confused, like, I have no idea what this passage is saying. Welcome to the club. Half the time I'm teaching these Bible studies, I'm like, I don't know what that means. And I read commentaries and I'm even more confused. Lord, what are you trying to say? Now, I'm not saying that you're not able to understand things. Obviously, like I said, the Holy Spirit guides you into all truth. But you're in good company if you're a little confused in this life because we're only human. 
But thankfully, we can always go up to the Lord and ask him for wisdom. James chapter 1, verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So maybe most of our frustration and anxiety as a Christian comes from not knowing what the Spirit is saying. Not knowing direction, having conviction, or we're not fully surrendering. I think I've mentioned this before, but back in 2008, when I took off a year from high school, I, not high school, year off from college, I was in a place where I could make a giant shift in my life. I could go to acting school, I could continue on in my band, or I could just do something different with photography or whatever. So I had those three options, and I recorded a prayer when I was in California on like uh, January, I guess it's 2009 now. So January 2009, I recorded a prayer where I said, God, show me what you want me to do. One of these three, three things, acting, photography, or music. I said, there are your choices, good luck. And uh, you know what, the Lord didn't answer me in those three choices. He had a different option for me. But I remember choosing music, discarding everything else, saying, you know what, I feel like this is what God wants me to do because it just feels right. It feels like when I'm playing shows and I'm witnessing to people at my shows and whatever, I'm just like, everything seems right. It feels like I was made to do this. And I remember the day before we released our CD, I was with my band member and I was in my room and we were about to release the CD and then one of the other band members noticed there was a mistake in one of the tracks. And I had devoted my life and soul for the past month into making the CD, going over to my friend's house, recording, mastering, mixing, listening to these stupid songs day after day after day after day. And he tells me there's a mistake in one of the songs I've never had a time in my life where I tried to pull the hair out of my head, but I literally did, and I cried. I went like this, I pulled, and I cried. And my friend was like, oh my gosh, he's having a midlife crisis at 20 years old. I just, I literally did not know what to do, because I felt like I devoted all of my time, all of my energy into something, and it still wasn't going to work. It was a frustrating place to be in. But you know what? When you seek the Lord, he will guide you into all truth. The reason why we're so sorrowful, the reason why we're so anxious, the reason why I was anxious at that moment is because I put all of my trust in myself, in my plans, in my ways. But just like the disciples in this passage, we have to reject that kind of thinking and instead Go to Jesus, ask him for wisdom, and look forward to what he is doing. Because his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are greater than our thoughts. As high as heaven is from the earth, that's how much higher his thoughts and ways are higher than our ways and thoughts. So, how much time do you spend in prayer? Just think about it. You don't have to answer me. How much time do you spend in prayer? Let's say that God, today was meeting you in your prayer closet. We're almost done, so don't worry. He's meeting you in your prayer closet and said, Mariella, Josh, Aaron, Brandon, I will give you whatever it is that you want. 
You can choose whatever it is. I will give it to you. What would you ask for? How many of us would be Solomon and ask for wisdom? Because if I'm that guy, I'm asking for an immediate solution, right? How many of you just thought of like your immediate problems? Like you thought of your circumstances, like I was thinking of my problem I'm experiencing now. But the right thing to do is not ask for your immediate problems to be fixed. It's to ask for wisdom that God can lead you and make you into the type of person that continually relies on him and knows what to do in any type of situation. So, finishing up now, in verse 19, now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him and he said to them, are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said a little while and you'll not see me a little, again a little while and you'll see me? Most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. And your joy no one will take from you. Everyone say that. No one will take from you. One more time. No one will take from you. Take from you what? Your joy. How many of you have had a baby before? <laughs> yeah, good. None of you have had a baby. I'd imagine it's kind of painful. I'm a guy. I don't know. So it's kind of strange when Jesus starts making this analogy about sorrow and joy regarding the birth and the pregnancy of a woman. But what's interesting to note about this is that Jesus is saying something so important right here in this passage, and that is the very thing that caused so much pain can be a source of joy. When a woman is going through labor and she's going through pregnancy, she's getting sick and she's weary and she's going through all these different things that accompany preparing uh, making way for this child to come into the world it's miserable but when that joy when when that child is born joy is experienced because a new human being has entered this world and this life and so jesus says a little while you have to deal with this a little while you have to deal with the sorrow but then your joy will be full and no one will be able to take your joy from you so one other thing to take note about this, this little passage is just glancing at it, we might think of ourselves as being the ones who are sorrowful and have to endure it in order to have joy. Like we look, at our, we look at this passage and we know that Jesus is talking to his disciples about you have sorrow and you will have joy, but think more so about the person who said this is about to go to the cross. That's why Isaiah says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. You see, Jesus suffered so that he could gain children, and as a result, we can be born again. We can be born into a new family because of the sorrow that Jesus himself experienced 
And when you are born again, it gives God great joy. There is no misery, no matter how sinful you are or what circumstances you bring about because of your sin and because of your turmoil, it gives God great joy, the fact that you are born into his kingdom. So never underestimate your worth to God because no matter how much pain it has caused him and how much our sin continually causes him, he thinks you're worth it, that he would go to the cross no matter what you've done. Verse 23, and in that day you'll ask me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Basically he's saying, listen, until now you haven't really asked me anything in terms of information. But in that day, you won't have any questions because I'll give you all the answers. And you should ask and receive that your joy may be full. If you don't have joy, just ask for it. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I'll no longer speak to you in figurative language. But I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I, I do not say to you that I'll pray, I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said to him, See, you are now speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. So basically, I, I can imagine it's a little insulting. I mean, Jesus like answered them, do you now believe? Really? Like the past three years of doing these miracles and all these things that we saw in the book of John, like those things didn't convince, convince you that I'm God? Just the fact that I spoke to you in plain terms about birth? And now you're like, oh, now we believe. Yes, that makes sense about like the child being born. Yes, I get that. Okay, we believe. Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. So he's saying, like, listen, you think you believe now, but you're about to lose your belief, that shallow belief at least. And yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus saw their belief wouldn't last. It was just hype. So bringing this full circle now, I know it's a long passage, but I'm trying to teach verse by verse, and there's just so much there, and I want you to get a little glimpse of what he's saying here. I want you to get a comprehensive overview of what he's saying. So don't miss out on this. Don't tune out, because this is really important. Coming first full circle now, Jesus is saying that the belief that lasts is a belief placed in a person, not in an experience. Jesus is saying, if you really believe on me, believe on me, not on certain things that I do for you or don't do for you. If you believe on me, believe in the Holy Spirit. If you believe on me, then you believe in the Father. You believe in the Father, you believe in me. So you have to trust in Jesus even if you don't have the experience immediately because you're not trusting in the set of circumstances. No matter how you feel or how far away from God you feel, you know that, you, you know that Jesus has died for you. And you can look forward to the future because you can look to the past and say, okay, well, Jesus died for me, so I guess that he, he must love me and gave himself for me. So now that the life that I live, I live to Christ through faith and through what he's given me. In this world, he says, you will have tribulation. And that's the worrisome thing is you will go and you might do the blessing blitz for three days. And just because you're hyped up, you do it, which is great. We want that to happen. But if it's not done in the spirit, you're going to experience tribulation and you won't have the second half of that promise. If there's one takeaway you take away from this, this entire message, that is, 
if you do not have the Holy Spirit, John chapter 16, verse 33 is only half applicable to you, which is in this world, you will have tribulation, period. Because you don't have Jesus. Because you don't have the Holy Spirit. But if you have the Holy Spirit, in this world, you will have tribulation. Peace is offered to the Christian, but tribulation is promised to the Christian. In this world, you have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Once again, Jesus stands at your, the door of your heart and knocks. If anyone wants him to come in, you have to open up the door and say, Jesus, come in. I want you to dine with me. I want you to be with me. But you have to allow his Holy Spirit to enter your life. So it brings it all back to that first point. If the Holy Spirit could be given to you beyond measure, what would change in your life? And secondly, if the Holy Spirit departed from you, would anyone notice? Are you living a life that is continually dependent on the person of Jesus Christ so that if Jesus was found out to be a liar or Jesus was found out to not be real or true, then your life itself would be in shambles. Are we dependent on the Holy Spirit? Are we depending on ourselves? Because going into this fall, I can guarantee you, you will have tribulation. But this is why we're teaching this Bible study. This is why Jesus taught his disciples these things 2,000 years ago to warn them, to let them know when you're having these tribulations, when you fall away, when you decide to discard all of this, you go away to college and you fall into sin, you start drinking alcohol, you start hooking up with people, you start having kids, you start doing whatever, you, fall, you feel far from God, you will remember that I've told you these things because the Holy Spirit says, I am knocking on the door of your heart and if you just let me in, I will come into you and I will dine with you. If you do not have the Holy Spirit in your life, it is because you chose not to allow him in. But remember, no matter where you are in life, if you are scattered like the disciples, remember, these disciples rejected Jesus when he went to the cross. If you become one of those people, I pray that none of you do. But if you do, remember, you can always go before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? Would you set me free? And he promises that he will. And if you do that, it does not matter what tribulations you face. does not matter what persecution, persecutions you face in this life. Because you will have tribulation, but he has overcome the world. And that becomes to you, instead of sorrow, your sorrow itself is turned into joy. The thing that gave you sorrow becomes your means for joy. Just as Jesus went to the cross, bearing our griefs, our sorrows, our shame... Yet, for the joy set before him, endure the cross, despising its shame, so that he could obtain us and we could be called children of God. And so, when we are born into the family of God, we can be filled with a joy and our joy may be full. And we could freely give to other people because we have freely received. And that's the whole heart behind the, the blessing blitz. Just recognizing what God has done in our lives and let, allowing his Holy Spirit to infuse the fragrance of Christ in our hearts so that we can diffuse that in the world. Let me close with this quote from Spurgeon. He said this, We wept when we were born, though all around us smiled. So shall we smile when we die while all around us weep. 
You can have a joy that the world will never understand and the world can never take away from you if you simply allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life. Let's pray.